Day, everybody. It is good to see you here and uh, very excited to uh, wrap up our series on the book of Jude tonight. Um, I do want to mention a couple of things really quickly in your prayer list that Pastor Justin just um, led us through. Um, there's a name missing, which is Pastor Justin and his wife, Angela. He does this every year. And so I'm going to ask you if you would so kindly to make sure that you fill in Pastor Justin and his wife, Angela, and their children as they lead our prayer ministry here at Christian Life. Um, I understand he doesn't want to be like, hey, pray for me, but I want to do that for him. So I want to encourage you to go ahead and add their names on there. also want to remind you uh, this coming Sunday uh, is going to be an incredible Sunday. We're going to have uh, uh, one service in here at 10 a.m., um, it will be crowded, okay? So you will need to get here early. And if you have concerns about being you know, near people, we will have uh, overflow in the four-year. We'll have overflow in Brown Chapel. Um, but it is going to be a phenomenal Sunday. Um, we're going to uh, uh, cast vision for the future and talk about the land and renovations around uh, the existing property. And uh, we've got an, a, a very incredibly exciting announcement to make to you. I'm going to just give you a cliffhanger. Okay, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's something that you don't know about, I promise. So you don't want to miss it. Uh, this Sunday is going to be phenomenal right here at 10 a.m. Uh, tonight, we wrap up our uh, series on Jude. Next week, Pastor will begin a new series here on Wednesdays um, for a few weeks. Tonight, I want, to, um, I want to feed those of you who may have ADHD or ADD. We're going to feed you tonight, okay? Because we are going to be all over the place. Your mind is going to be going bouncing back and forth. Uh, so um, I want to encourage you just to kind of uh, help stay on track because we are going to go through some things. I'm going to kind of give you an outline of what we're going to do. And then we'll work our way through it. Tonight, what I want to do is uh, we'll read the text, and then I want to uh, give you kind of a recap and a review of the last three weeks, just very, very brief within just a couple of minutes. In case you haven't been here the past um, uh, three weeks, we'll do that. And then what I want to do is I want to talk to you about some parts in this book of Jude that we have obviously skipped over, some parts that we have not addressed and I'm sure that every single week as we're reading through the chapter of Jude, that your mind is like, whoa, wait, hold on, what, what? he just read over that and didn't even address what it was. Some, some kind of odd things, uh, things about uh, uh, an angel having a conversation with Lucifer, this thing about love feasts, uh, just some different things that we haven't really addressed yet. I want to take a little bit of time and go through those. And then finally, what I really want to focus on tonight is, is the idea of finishing well. You know, when Jude... Um, uh, begins his book, he kind, of, he, he kind of bookends his book, the beginning and the end, and he talks about us being kept by God. But throughout the text, what he's reminding us is that we are to be people who are faithful believers. We're to be people who not only finish strong, but we walk through this life strong. And so I want to just give you some incredibly practical um, uh, tips tonight, uh, and I want to ask the Lord to really encourage your heart as we do it. Uh, tonight, if you have your, uh, your notes, um, I believe it'll be on the screen also. We're going to read through the entire chapter of Jude, uh, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people up out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffered the punishment of eternal fire. 
In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, he did not dare to condemn him for slander, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do, those things will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they committed in their ungodliness and all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere instinct and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be majesty and glory, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we do thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for the privilege to teach your word. And um, as always, I want to invite, even in this moment, the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to our hearts and our minds and lighten us in ways that we have never seen before, reveal things in scripture that I won't even teach tonight. I pray that you will deal with us personally and in very practical, helpful ways. We pray for your covering. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Tonight, as I said, I want, to, uh, I want to begin with kind of a recap and a review. I want to talk to you about um, all the things that, that we have kind of um, already covered over the, over the past few weeks, but then I want to quickly move past that um, into the text. Um, in your notes here, the question, I presented a few different questions here. Number one, the question, who wrote the letter and to whom was it written? On the very first night, we talked about the fact that this man named Jude, his real name is Judas. Um, there's an obvious reason he did not want to be called Judas. Uh, he is the half-brother of Jesus, the full brother of James, the other apostle. Um, this book was written to Jewish Christians. Um, one of the main reasons that, that we can make this assumption is because of all of the examples and the text and the language that Jude uses throughout the book. If you notice, he uses uh, different references from books that are Jewish literature. They may not be in our Old Testament, but they are Jewish literature. Uh, he talks, uh, every example, he gives six or seven different examples throughout this text, and they are all of Old Testament origin. And so we understand that he was writing um, to the Jewish people. We see the same type of thing with the book of Hebrews. Uh, the, uh, the, the breadth of the book of Hebrews, um, if you're not a Jewish person or if you aren't familiar with the Old Testament text, you're not going to be able to follow the book of Hebrews because it was written to Hebrews. It was written to Jewish people. And in the same way, this book of Jude was also written uh, to Jewish Christians who had put their faith in Christ. Um, 
Jude addresses some very primary issues, and those are the issues that we have given our attention to over the past couple of weeks. Um, These are the things like addressing false teachers. Um, We talked a good deal about this the last couple of weeks. Uh, People, uh, again, not immature teaching, not people who aren't just developed in their theology, but people who know truth and simply reject it, and those who reject it for the purpose of growing their fame or just to deceive the people. Um, He addresses this in full. Uh, Number two, he addresses false teachings. And so Jude is not just talking about false teachers and watch out for the wolves. He's saying, listen, this is the kind of thing you need to watch out for. Specifically in this text, he's talking about what we would call today the hyper-grace movement. This is the idea that um, as long as you, you know, raise your hand and repeat a prayer, uh, that there's no longer a need to obey God. There's no longer to submit yourself to the scriptures. Um, There is, as Jude would describe it, you have a license for immorality now because of the grace of God, which is an absolute abuse and a disgrace to not only scripture, but to the cross of Christ. Uh, we talked a little bit about modalism, different you know, false teachings. I talked a little bit about this on Sunday. We talked about the Superman heresy that believes that Jesus was uh, more than man, but less than God. Um, all these types of heresies and what we realized, what we discovered is that um, all of these, these heresies that we see today have roots in ancient history. And so the only difference is that they are kind of dressed in different language. They're dressed in different clothes, but it's still heresy. And so uh, we talked about different ways to uh, combat that syncretism, all of these kind of things. The third thing that Jude addresses is the judgment of God. Last week, um, we, we spent the entire night on the judgment of God, and um, frankly, afterwards, I had asked um, our AV department not to put that online um, because I felt like there were just some things that I said that could really be misunderstood um, if, if you're not a part of the Christian Life family. And so um, if you weren't here last week, sorry. Okay, I can give you notes if you like that, but uh, we're going we're gonna to keep that offline. But the point is, is that he, he deals with the judgment of God, and the judgment of God is something that we have to deal with today. And so last week, we talked about how we can rest in the, in, and trust in the judgment of God because he will do what's right every single time and in every single way. The fourth thing that we're going to talk about tonight is Jude addresses faithful believers, he talks to the believers. He encourages them. Uh, you know, there's a twofold purpose in the book of Jude. Uh, the first purpose that Jude has is that people should fight. They should fight for their faith. They should contend for the truth that has been entrusted to them. They should fight against false teachers, fight against false teaching. But the second emphasis that Jude gives is that um, we should be a people who finish. We should finish well. We should not just, you know, be tossed to and fro here and there, but we should be people of commitment, people of the word, people of the cross. And so tonight we're going to focus um, the, the latter part of our discussion um, on, on finishing well and how we may, we may finish well. The third question I put in your notes here is, what are the secondary topics of discussion? These are the things that um, we haven't really addressed. They're in the text, and I'm sure, like I said, over the past few weeks, as we've read through the text, that your attention was like, wait, hold on, what did he just say? Um, And I'm sure it was very confusing, so I wanted to clear some of those things up. Um, Number one, one of the secondary issues that Jude addresses is the idea of spiritual authority, okay? One of the main themes in the book of Jude is this idea that created beings have a tendency to evade the authority, the umbrella of authority that they're placed under. Whatever that looks like, the tendency is to evade that, to go around it, to come out from the covering. And so, Um, he gives all of these examples. He talks about even the angels in heaven, right? Uh, What does he say? He says that they left their proper abode. They left that abode. They stepped outside of their lane. They stepped outside of their umbrella of authority and they came to earth. Uh, He gives the illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks specifically about Sodom. And when the angels of God went to Lot's house, the Bible says uh, in Genesis 19, 
I believe, or 11, uh, the Bible says that, that the angels um, were in Lot's house and that the people of Sodom surrounded Lot's house and they were beating his door down because they were demanding that Lot send out these angels so they may have intercourse with these angels. And I know that's graphic and I know that is incredibly uncomfortable to hear at a church, but it's in the text, it's in scripture, and so we have to deal with it. And so Jude gives us this illustration with this idea in mind, that even these humans, when they saw celestial beings, that they stepped out of the authority of God, where he had said, look, I have given one man for one woman for life, and I have given one woman for one man for life. These men were going outside of that. They were having homosexual relationships with one another. And not only that, they wanted to have homosexual relations with these angels that had uh, joined Lot. And so very disturbing, very dark stuff that's going on, but Jude doesn't shy away from it. And I just want to remind us tonight that God never shies away from difficult topics. As a matter of fact, he hits it head on. Our Western culture is very sensitive to a lot of topics. And I just want to encourage you, um, as believers, we need not to be so worried um, about misrepresenting the Lord. Okay, um, I know that when you're in culture, when you're having conversations, even with friends or family, there are a lot of questions that come up that, that are in the Bible. There are a lot of things that are like, man, what do you, what do you think about this? And my instinct, and I think most people's instincts, we feel like we have to defend God on some level. We have to bring God down to a level to accommodate the mind of the Western man or woman. But I just want to remind us, if we will just be faithful to God's word, if, if we will, and, you know, not being difficult or defiant or anything like that with people, but just be faithful to God's word. The word of God has far more power than our words have. And so I just want to encourage you, when those difficult things come up, um, I like to practice this thing where people ask me and I'll say, I'm not really sure. Let's, let's open the text and let's read it together and see what God has to say because my opinions are going to fall short. And so this is what Jude does. He doesn't pull back. Um, so he talks about all of these different examples where people went outside of the realm of the authority that God had given them. But then he gives us an, a positive example. He gives us this example of Michael the archangel. The Bible says that Michael was going to take the body of Moses and he was going to bury the body of Moses. As he was obeying the Lord and, and doing what God had commanded him to do, what we find in Jude is that the devil contended with Michael the archangel, right? Now, if you remember in, in scripture, um, the only three archangels that we're aware of, we're not sure if there's more, but the only three we're uh, aware of are Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. Well, Lucifer is a fallen archangel, so when he meets up to contend with Michael, this is like two beings that are equal opposites, right? One is evil, one is holy, but they're equal in their power and strength. As the devil contends with Michael, the archangel, Michael does not fight the devil one-on-one, -on -one, but he instead he stays within his spiritual realm of authority, and this is what he says. He says, I'm not going to slander you, but the Lord rebuke you. Now listen to me, this is powerful. This is powerful for us to hear and understand because most of us have been raised in circles where um, we are very quick to slander the devil. We're very quick to slander evil spirits. And I understand, I, again, I don't want to have like super long conversations after service about this or anything, but, but I'm just saying this, that, that we as the sons and daughters of God, although that's our spiritual realm, we have got to make sure we operate within our spiritual realm. We can't get outside of that. Listen to me. If the archangel Michael would not come against Lucifer in a specific way and said, he said, the Lord rebuke you, I think we need to pay attention to that. I think we need to be very careful before we go about rebuking and, you know, all these kind of things. I'm saying there's a place for that. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm just saying that, that there needs to be a level of respect given to celestial beings. And you say, what are you saying, Corey? You want me to respect the devil? 
Yes, but not in the way that you think I mean. I'm not talking about honor. I'm not talking about fear. I'm talking about a proper respect. In the same way that if you were a person in Nazi Germany and you saw Adolf Hitler walking down the road, even if you wanted to defy him openly, you would understand that if you spoke the wrong words, it would be the end of your life. And so you, you don't honor him as a person, you don't fear him as a person, but you respect the position that he holds, knowing that he has a great deal of power and you've got to stay in your realm. And so um, I know that can be very confusing. I know that can be frustrating to hear on some level, but I think we've got to allow the text to teach us some things, even if it may not feel exactly like what we want to hear. Number two, let's move on from that. Number two, Jude addresses what we call love feasts. Now, I'm not sure every time that I've read this text aloud to you on Wednesdays, every time I've thought, I've got to talk about this. i got to talk about it. I know people are thinking, what in the world is Jude talking about with these love feasts? And so let me explain what a, what a love feast was. Uh, back in this time, um, the, the, the people of God on the Lord's Day, they would oftentimes gather together. And, and basically, they would have like a potluck. Have you ever been to a potluck? They would basically have a type of potluck. Everybody would bring some type of dish, and they would gather in homes. And there may, be, there may be three people, there may be 23 people, but they would gather in homes, and they would uh, all bring a dish, and they would kind of eat out of all these dishes. And so this was kind of uh, like a family reunion of sorts, right? This is why Paul would say, listen, when you greet one another, greet each other with a holy kiss, because it was a love fest. It wasn't a perversion. It was a place where the brothers and sisters of Christ would come together and they would, they would just do life together and they would exchange fellowship with one another. And so as Jude deals with this, what he's saying about love feasts is he's saying, listen, these false teachers, they're coming in to these love feasts. I wish you would have called it something else. That sounds so weird to say today. But, but he says when they're coming in on the Lord's Day to celebrate this with you and, and you're having communion and you're having worship and you're praying together and you're learning, he says these false teachers are coming in. And they're perverting the real purpose of this. And he said, some of them are coming in and they're like, they're not interested with the body of Christ. They have their own cliques. And they will bring a lot of food for the people that they want to feed, but they're not sharing the food with everyone. And what's happening is they're causing division. Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians. He, he's dealing, well, Peter deals with it in 2 Peter also. But, but, Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians, and he gives them a scolding. And he says, listen, you're doing this, you're showing favoritism, you're clicking up with each other, you're not sharing with everybody, some of you are getting drunk, you're abusing the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, far be it from us to act like this, I would rather that you not even do the love feasts, right? And so he's dealing with all of these things, um, because he wants the people of God to operate in a, in a way that's honorable. And so Jude says, listen, when the people come together for these love feasts, make sure that these false teachers aren't creating something that shouldn't be there. Make sure they're not creating division. Make sure they're not leading people astray. Make sure that they're not being stingy, but that they're being generous with all that they have. And so Jude addresses love feasts. And then finally, number three, what Jude um, secondarily issues is he addresses helping false thinkers, okay? In the last few verses, what you have in, in most of the text is Jude dealing with false teachers. And he's saying, listen, guys, you've got to watch for this. You've got to watch for this. Let me give you some Old Testament examples. And he goes through the list about false teachers. At the end of the text, Jude steps in and he says, listen, but you've got some people among you, they're not false teachers, but they're false thinkers. They've been, in other words, they've been influenced by the false teachers. And so this is what I want you to do. And he, he gives them this charge to go on mission. And he says, listen, some of them are so close to the fire and they have no idea. Snatch them from the fire. 
Others of them just need to be shown mercy, and some of them need to be mentored out of this. But he gives this charge to them that they should go on mission to salvage the souls of these people that are being led astray, okay? And so those are the primary issues that Jude deals with that we've already talked about the past few weeks. The last three that I just talked about, these are the the secondary topics that Jude has, has discussed. For the rest of our time tonight, what I want to do is I want to talk with you about how Jude finishes the book. And basically what Jude does is he gives this um, encouraging um, uh, charge to the people of God about finishing their race in the best way possible. We call it finishing well, you know, and if you've lived life long enough, you realize that there are some people that finish well and you realize that some people don't. And for some of us, I I just want to remind us here for a moment, there are some of us here that got our start with Christ later than others, right? Some of you cut your teeth on the pews, right? You've, You've been a Christian since you can remember. You may not even remember the exact moment you came to faith in Christ, but you have always loved Jesus from childhood. Others of you came to faith in Christ in college or university. Some of you have come to faith in Christ in your, in your 60s. And all I want to remind you of is this. It doesn't matter how you started the race. All that matters is how you finish. Jesus is not measuring the first 60 years against the latter part of your life. He's saying, listen, I don't even care about this. This is under the blood. This right here is what you need to focus on, and you need to make sure that you finish this race well. Um, last, uh, well, a few days ago, I took my son uh, bowling. For some reason, he got a hair you want to go bowling, and we never bowl, okay? So I am like the worst bowler on the planet. And uh, we're, we're next to these teenage boys that they should, if they're not in a league, they should be in a league. You know, when they, when they throw the ball, their leg goes like that and everything. It's, it's amazing. And um, my son, we, we were throwing the bowling ball and everything, and uh, we were going through, and we played three games. And after the first game and a half, I could tell he was getting very frustrated because he's not very good. You know why he's not very good? Because he's never bowled before, right? But he has this expectation that he should just be the best. And so I'm kind of coaching him along through this and trying to give him some tips and everything. And, you know, me, I'm trying to give him tips. I'm barely beating him, you know. And so I remember as, as we were bowling, he was growing frustrated and everything. At a certain point, I saw a total shift in his demeanor. And it's because as he caught his stride, as he started picking up on some tips, as he started doing some things in more of a mechanical way, he started getting better rolls. He got some strikes. He got some spares. His score started creeping up a little bit more. And afterwards, I reminded him. I said, buddy, I wasn't even thinking about this sermon, but I did say this. I said, buddy, I said, it never matters how you start. It only matters how you finish. Aren't you thankful for that? And he's like, yeah, man, I felt so good when, you know, that last game I did so much better than the first. Listen to me. In your life, the first game of bowling doesn't really matter much. You know what it does? The last game. The last game of bowling matters. And so we need to be a people who are really striving um, to do well in this last part of our life. I want to give you a shocking statistic. Um, In the Bible, there are about 100 biographies of people, okay? This is, uh, this is a, when I say biography, what I mean is it describes a person, um, their, their relationship to God, how they did in their life, all these kind of things, right? It, it shows you different angles of their life. And out of those about 100 different biographies, only about a third of them finished well. Do you realize that? Out of 100 people's lives kind of surveyed in Scripture, only about 30 or 35 of them, depending on how you scale and how you, you know, what your standard is, only about a third of them finished well. This is why when I'm having conversations with people, you know, and they'll say things, well, look what David did, or, you know, look what Abraham and Sarah did, look what they did. I always remind them, I say, listen, the Bible was not 
initially, the primary reason that we have scripture is not to give us good moral examples of people. It's not, that's not the purpose of, of the storylines of people's lives, right? Uh, I heard somebody say one time, um, show me in the Bible somebody who has a godly marriage, right? And, and you, you almost can't find it, right, specifically. But the point is, is that Scripture was never intended to show us how morally good people could be. It was intended the quite opposite, to show us how morally broken that we are. And so when we see scripture, we've got to be reminded of that fact that everybody doesn't finish well. Even people who love God, sometimes people don't finish well based on the choices of their life. And so um, I was reading an article by a guy out of, out of Africa, uh, part of this is in your notes, and he talks about four different types of people who finish and how they finish. The first one is this, he says, there are those people who run to the finish. These are people that, that may have stumbled early on in their life or whatever, but near the, the end part of their life, they really pressed into the Lord. They walked in complete surrender. They walked in obedience. They really, um, really ran hard after the Lord. This is people like Abraham, people like Moses, Joshua, Daniel, Esther, um, even Peter, as flawed as Peter was, right? We always pick on Peter a little bit because he was such a goofball and he made so many mistakes and we identify with him so well. But listen to me, the latter part of his life was incredible. You realize that in, 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 in the book of Acts, when we get a history of the early church, you realize before Paul shows up, who's the man? Peter, he was incredible. And he was leading the church with skill and with dignity. He did it in a really incredible way. And so these are people that, that really, again, they, they weren't perfect people, but towards the end of their lives, they ran the race incredibly, incredibly well. Now, let me clarify just, just really quickly that those who finish well in the eyes of the Lord are not always considered winners in the eyes of people. Jesus himself was not considered a success by those who crucified him. He was considered the loser, and they were considered the winner, that is until he rose from the grave, right? But if you look all throughout history, if you look at the lives of the apostles, if you look at John Huss, John Wycliffe, if you look at, look at all these people who have gone before us that really finished well, when they died, people didn't look on them as victors. They looked on them with pity and with sympathy, but the eyes of heaven looked on them as winners. I remember I was in England a few years ago and um, I had to go to Oxford because C.S. Lewis, you know, the, the golden... Uh, uh, Eagle place where he would uh, write with the inklings. And uh, I had to go, so I got on a train all by myself. I left my wife in London with Pastor and his family. I was like, I'm going to C.S. Lewis. She didn't want to go, so I just left. And I was like, I'm going to see C.S. Lewis where he lived. So I get to Oxford, and it was, it was amazing, and it was everything that I ever thought it would be. I ate at the restaurant where he wrote and all that stuff. It was, it was amazing. And uh, I started just walking around the town. And I came upon this place in the middle of one of the roads, just a random, and there was, there was like this, um, it was tile, it was about this big, but it was, it was probably nine or 12 different tiles. And it was like a white, you know, beige kind of color, and then there was a dark cross in the middle. And I thought, this is so weird, and you know, I'm standing there looking at it, and all of a sudden I look up and there's like a UPS truck that's about to run over me and I, I jumped out of the way, but it's, it's just this thing in the middle of the road. And so I started researching, I got on my phone and I was like, man, what is this in Oxford? And what I found is that it was two martyrs by the names of Littemir and Ridley who gave their lives as martyrs in Oxford. They gave their lives in that very spot where that little marker of representation was. And I'm gonna tell you this, listen to me. When they gave their lives, you know the people that were watching did not consider them worth anything. But the eyes of heaven looked on them. And although the only thing to really bring remembrance of their lives is the small little marker that the UPS truck is backing over, they are celebrated in the halls of heaven today for their faithfulness. 
And so I just want to remind us that regardless of what people of the world feel about us as we strive to finish well, the Lord looks on us in a very, a very different way. And so number one, there are those who run to finish and there are those who walk to finish. These are people who had major moral failures. They finished with the Lord, but they had major issues throughout their life. Uh, David, um, I know that, that David is to be revered. I mean, he is, he is um, you know, it's through his lineage that, that Messiah comes in and we love, honor and respect David. But uh, David had some issues throughout his life. I mean, and I'm not just talking about Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. I mean, as if that's, you know, not bad enough. But, but David had a lot of wives. He was involved in polygamy. I mean, there, there were just some things um, that, that David really struggled with. Uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, he was one of the most godly kings in, in all of the Old Testament. One of the first things that he did when he came into the power is he, he took down the idols out of what they called the high places, which are basically just mountains where they put different idols and, and they would worship. Uh, one of the first things that he did is he went in and he, he tore those high places down. But by the end of his life, he had allowed people to reinstate those high places. He had just had some issues along the way. And so there are some people who run through the finish line. There are some people that finish with God, but it's more of a walk. Then there are some people that just limp across the finish line. You know what I mean? These are people like Gideon, okay? Gideon, as incredible as a man of God he was and as much faith as he had, um, Gideon, near the end of his life, he got caught up in adultery, or uh, not adultery, in idolatry. Um, he, his heart was like um, just, just overwhelmed with a sense of revenge. Um, he was really dealing with some difficult things in his life. Eli the priest, uh, you remember this is a man who, who started really, really well. Uh, Hannah brought her son Samuel, who would be Samuel the, the mighty prophet, and, and Eli basically raised this incredible prophet, but Eli didn't, didn't really finish that well. He kind of, I mean, I believe he's in heaven, but, but just barely. No, no, you know, he, he kind of limped across the finish line. The Bible says that, that he allowed his sons just to go awry and they were, they were sleeping with prostitutes in the temple of God that, you know, near the end of his life, it's like Eli lost all sense of discipline uh, for his life. He grew overweight and, you know, blind and just, you know, he ended up falling off, you know, a wall and, and dying. I mean, it was just a sad, sad ending um, that we see. And so though these people will be in heaven, you know, they just kind of limped across the finish line, right? And then number four, you finally have those people who did not finish. They didn't cross the line. They did not walk with the Lord. These are people like Absalom, people like King Ahab, people like Judas. Uh, these are people who just did not finish, okay? So this is where I'm going with this. If you are a child of God, that means that you are covered in the blood of Jesus. Your sins are washed away removed as far as the east is from the west. And I want you to hear me say this, you're going to heaven. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and turned from your sin and trusted him as savior, you are going to heaven. This is what Jude reminds us, you are kept by Christ Jesus. You are kept by God, okay? You are going to heaven. That's, that's not the question I wanna deal with tonight. The question I want to deal with is how will you get to heaven? Will you run and finish well? Will you walk across the finish line? Or will you have to be drug across the finish line or limp there, right? And this is a very real question that every single one of us, listen to me say this, every single one of us have to deal with this because it is appointed unto man to die once and then after that what? the judgment. And so as we stand before the Lord, we've got to ask some very difficult questions. And so tonight, what I want to do for the next 20 minutes or less, I want to talk to you about nine practical ways that you can ensure yourself to finish well. Okay. Um, this is not a comprehensive list. You know, it's not going to have every single nuance, but it has some generalities that are scriptural and I believe that if a person commits their lives to these nine things, that they will indeed finish well. Okay, number one is this. Number one is to continue to invest 
and spiritual disciplines. Prayer and worship and reading, fasting, being here on Wednesdays, the fellowship with believers uh, through life groups or on Sundays, being around a spiritual community. Uh, this, is what, this is what I would say when it comes to spiritual disciplines, okay? I know there are a lot of them. I know that they're varied. We're all at different places and what we like the most. But this is what I would simply say when it comes to spiritual disciplines, if you don't have any, that's okay. You just need to start. And it doesn't mean that you have to read the Bible in a year. And it doesn't mean that you've got to read the chapter of the Bible a day or you've got to pray for 42 minutes a day. That's not what that means. Start small. Every single one of us began small. And hopefully it grew from there. But all I'm saying is this. Whatever it is that you have to do to begin with spiritual disciplines or to continue in spiritual disciplines... We must do it. We've got to do whatever is required to stir the spiritual passion within us, to keep the flame uh, fanned, to keep the fire burning, to keep the passion alive. We need to invest in these spiritual disciplines. It's amazing how the Lord breathes on us when we take the time and we sacrifice and we do these things. It's amazing how the Lord speaks and what he shows us and how kind and how revealing of himself he, he is when we just simply dedicate ourselves to spiritual disciplines. Number two, which is kind of tied to spiritual disciplines, but I want to separate it, is this, to continue to be connected to the true vine, which is Jesus. I want to remind us, I may have said this Sunday, I can't remember, Knowledge is essential to your faith in Christ. You've got, listen, this whole thing with Jude, especially the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about knowledge and what is pure teaching and what is false teaching. We've talked a lot about that stuff. And I think that is essential for every Christian believer to know. But you realize that knowledge is essential, but it's never enough. Jesus never said, listen, if you know the Bible, you know, you will know me. No, no. he said, listen, know me. Intimacy is required in relationship with God. This is why Jesus, listen to me, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. These are his final hours. He's not oblivious to this. He knows it. And what is he talking about as he prays, as he teaches? The final hours of Jesus's life, this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, just remain in me. Remain in me. Sit with me. Be with me. Pray to me. Let me speak to your heart. Just be in fellowship with me. And if you will do that, you will remain connected to the vine. And the life flow of the vine will come into your life. Number three is that we need to continue to pursue purpose and service. I think it says serve, but it should say service. There's a saying that I like to say that can borderline be offensive, but I hope it's encouraging and not offensive in my heart of hearts. And it's simply this. When it comes to issues of purpose and service in the kingdom of God, if you're not dead, you're not done. Okay? If you're not dead, you're not done. Far too many people, as they grow um, in, in age, far too many people kind of check out of purpose. They kind of check out of what it means to serve God in a, in a kingdom community type place. And though I understand, you know, a lot of reasons why, and some people have very legitimate health issues. I don't want to get into that. I'm just saying, I understand there are legitimate things that go on in people's lives, but I am saying this, that if there are not legitimate issues in our lives, we need to be dedicated to purpose and to service in the kingdom of God. Okay, uh, I was so blessed, you know, Sunday afternoon, um, you know, I had preached two services and I was exhausted and, and I walk out, I had to go by my office and uh, I, I go to my office and I go into the office quad and there are four ladies in the office and they're all senior adults, you know, some, I'm not going to guess their ages, but, but they're all senior adults, okay. And I walked into the office and they were so encouraging and they were so life-giving and I was like, what are you guys doing? They're on our 
prayer, our phone prayer ministry. So you know on, on, on Sundays, if you watch online, it says if you want prayer, call this number. There, there are four of these ladies that every single Sunday, they are up in the quad while we're in here enjoying worship or the preaching or, or whatever. They're up there waiting. Why? Because they realize that although they may not be able to do what they once did, there is still purpose for their life in the kingdom of God. And they still need to serve because they want to finish strong. And I was so proud. of I mean, I was exhausted stepping out of the pulpit. But when I walked in there and I saw those ladies, I mean, they were super encouraging. But, but just to see them, like, continuing to serve God, even in, you know, the, the latter part of their life, it was so refreshing to see. It was so incredible to see. And so I want to encourage you, continue to, to pursue purpose and service. Number four, continue to obey. There's nothing more to say about that. Number five. Continue to protect yourself from sin. I know that the, the older that we get, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself, I know that the older that we get, there is a tendency to think that the traps of sin were, were traps that I may have fallen into 20 years ago or 15 years ago. But I want to remind us that Scripture says that sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you and its desire is to rule over you. And we must combat that. I was listening to a, a, a professor at, I think it was Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was talking about how uh, he has a friend who's in the later part of his life. He's in his, I think he's in his early 70s. And the man, they were having a conversation and the man revealed to him, he said, uh, listen, you know what I've realized through my study, not only of scripture, but what I've realized throughout church history is that some of the most incredible men and women of God who have fallen, they have fallen in the latter part of their life. And this is what he says. He says, it, it hit me in the face like a ton of bricks that I am entering the most dangerous era of my life in my 70s. I mean, it was, it was shocking. I thought, I have never thought of it in a sense like that. But I'm going to tell you what, as I grow older and as I sit with older men and women through counseling or through just friendship or whatever the case may be, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded that we are all broken. We're redeemed, but we still have broken humanity in us. And we have to be vigilant to protect our hearts against sin. Number six is that we must continue to release the hurt that others have caused us. Can I tell you that the vast majority of people that are hurt, there is validity with their hurt. Whether it be church hurt or people who have family issues or you know, people who were molested or abuses that happen with religious spirits or, or whatever the case may be. Most of us who are hurt, we have legitimate cause to be upset. We have legitimate reason that we are hurt. But I just want to remind us that we can't allow sin that has been done to us to become sin in us. We have to be a people that release hurt. You know, we're, we're dealing with a, with a movement in, in church leadership across the Western church. We're dealing with this, this movement of what's called deconstruction, where um, people who were raised in the church or, you know, place their faith in Christ, uh, they're beginning to question everything about the church and everything about Scripture. And, and I'm going to just say I've got no problem with, with questions because I believe that God, you know, through his word, we can answer every question that anybody has. I believe that, okay? I'm not intimidated by that at all. What troubles me is the hurt that is communicated um, through socials or through, you know, just people angrily writing online or whatever the case may be. What frustrates me most about that is that they talk a lot about their hurt, but they don't talk about their healing. And listen to me, I validate their hurt. I think that the church in general has, has done a lot of damage to a lot of people, sometimes intentionally, most times unintentionally. But the point is, is that people are hurt by people in the church, by church leadership. It happens, okay? It's happened from the beginning. My point is, is that it's one thing to be a person who has been hurt. It's another thing to be a person who has been hurt, but is in the process of being healed. 
And I'm not saying that it's something that is gonna happen overnight, but I'm just saying if we never take the first step, we'll never reach the last step. And so we've gotta be people who are dedicated to releasing the hurt that others have caused us. Listen to what Proverbs chapter four says. The writer says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows out of it. If you recognize bitterness in your soul, it's because there's something in your heart. And if you recognize being short with people, certain people, it's because there's something in the heart. On the other hand, if you're full of affirmation and love and encouragement, you know why? Because there's something in your heart. This is what scripture says. Listen, whatever is in your heart, that means whatever you do is going to flow from that place. And so we need to be hyper diligent to make sure that we are guarding our heart and we are releasing hurt that others have caused us, no matter how valid that hurt is. Okay? Number seven, continue to invest in spiritual relationships. A few years ago, I, um, I picked up a book and the book, I can't even remember the title. I tried to search for it, but I couldn't remember the title. But it was a book about people uh, in church leadership and what they could do to not fall from grace, what they could do to not have a moral failure, what they could do just you know, not, to, not to blow it as, as a person. And on the back of that book, there were, I, I, if I remember right, there were, there were six or seven endorsements. And as I looked at this book that had been written in like 2015, I think, when I looked at the back of the book and out of the six or seven people who endorsed the book, five of them were no longer in ministry because of moral failure. And I thought to myself, I thought, why, why did this happen? Why, how, could, how could a person endorse a book and then do exactly the opposite of what the book is instructing. How could, you know, all this stuff. And so you start thinking all these things. But at the end of the day, this is what I think happens to most people who have major moral failures and, and walk away from the Lord. This is what I think happens. I think that they isolate themselves to such the degree. They either isolate themselves or from the people of God or they insulate themselves with people who only speak the language they want to hear. You hear what I'm saying? I think the vast majority of people who, who blow it big time and walk away from the church, I think it's people who either isolate themselves or it's people who insulate themselves with people that they only want to hear certain things. That's what I think happens almost every time. And so we need to be a people who invest in spiritual relationships. And so I would say this, I believe that every Christian needs to be a spiritual mentor. I don't care if you're 12 or 92. I think every Christian should have someone below them that they are investing in, whether it be children, grandchildren, or somebody random. There need to be people below us. This is a, a, a scriptural pattern we see from Genesis to Revelation. Jethro to Moses, Elijah to Elijah, Jesus to the disciples, Paul to Timothy, Paul to Titus, on and on and on again. And let me tell you what happens when you take on the role of a spiritual mentor in somebody else's life. What happens is that there is an unspoken accountability that settles in your soul. All of a sudden, you begin to question the decisions that you make at a higher level. Why? Because you know that you're influencing somebody and they're watching your life. Right, And so there's this unspoken accountability that happens. But I'm going to tell you this, no matter where you're at in the Lord, there is always somebody below you in their maturity. And you can always help people up. And so I think that every Christian should be a spiritual mentor. But I also think that every, spiritual, or every Christian should have a spiritual mentor. I think we need to be spiritual mentors and we need to have spiritual mentors. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, you have countless guides, or other translation says, you have countless teachers in Christ. You have countless leaders in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. And what's he saying? He's saying, listen, teachers are good. This is part of the gifting, the fivefold gifting that, that God has given to the church. The teachers are good. But he says this, he says, but there's something different about a father who relationally will draw you in 
and take you places that you couldn't go without him. And so I believe that every person should be a mentor and should also have a mentor. I was talking to a young leader um, just a couple of weeks ago, and um, he said, I'll never, you know, uh, long story short, uh, he, he said in the beginning of his ministry, I sent him a book or something. I didn't even remember sending him a book, wrote a little note, hey, welcome to the ministry, you know, something like that. And he said, you'll never, you know, know how much that meant and all this kind of stuff. And so he started asking me about mentorship and all this kind of stuff. And I, told, I just started thinking back over my life. And I said, man, uh, I had really incredible mentors as, as a young minister. And they taught me a lot of good practices. And, and one of the most important things that I learned about, be, uh, about having a mentor is that I can't wait for a mentor to come to me. I have to pursue that mentor. And so what I would do, I would, I would write throughout the year, um, I would write letters of encouragement to other pastors. Some pastors that were like, like one time I remember uh, writing a letter to Greg Laurie. You know who Greg Laurie, I, I wrote a letter. And guess what? He replied. You know what I'm saying? Like it was just this cool thing. But I was just, man, I love your ministry. I'm so thankful. I'm praying for you, all this kind of stuff. I would do that. But on a very personal level, there were people in my life that I wanted to stay in my life, but I realized that they're busy people. And they don't have time to chase me down to make sure I'm okay, so I got to chase them down. And so throughout the year, I would call them or pray for them or uh, write them letters. At the end of every year, I would send them a gift, maybe a book I had read earlier that year. And I said, you know, hey, man, I appreciate you so much, your voice in my life. This book was incredible. I hope you find it a blessing. I'd, I'd send it to them in the mail. And I'll tell you, throughout my life as, as, a, as a budding Christian and as a budding minister, those mentors that I diligently pursued were incredible and huge voices in my life, but I learned that I couldn't wait on them. I had to go after them. And so I want to encourage you, listen to me. And I know, I know at, a, at a church this size, you know, um, we, we only have, you know, eight or nine pastors on staff. And so the reality is this, is that every single pastor can't be a personal mentor to every single person. There's, there's no way. Furthermore, that's not the way God designed the body. God designed the body to minister to the body. And so we've got to be people who go to people that maybe the Lord has placed somebody on your heart. I'm not saying the pastors don't want it. I'm just saying we do mentor people, but we can't mentor every single person on that personal level. Does that make sense? All right, um, so I'm just saying that, that we need to be diligent about being a spiritual mentor and having a spiritual mentor. Number eight, very, very quickly, is we need to continue to see through the lens of Scripture. The events of your life will be crystallized through the lens of Scripture and nowhere else. Your suffering, your losses, your gains, your successes, your delays all filtered through scripture will make so much more sense than if you're not looking through that filter. And I'm going to tell you this, I believe this with all of my heart. The people who do not finish well, don't finish well because they get distracted by this world. The people that do finish well are distracted by another world. It's what Paul would write to the Colossians. He would say, set your mind on things above not on earthly things. Finally, number nine is this. I said 20 minutes, I'm almost there. Number nine is this, continue to guard against false teaching and false thinking. Paul would say to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Listen to me say this. As we grow we begin to realize that emotions oftentimes become thoughts. Thoughts oftentimes become words, and words oftentimes become actions. And in order for us to guard against false teaching and false thinking, we've got to learn to control how we think, and we've got to submit it all to Scripture. This is what Paul says to uh, the Corinthians. He says, we demolish arguments or false teachings and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make that thought obedient to Christ. Do you know how we make obedient to Christ? By filtering it through his word. 
And so in order for us to do that, we've got to make sure to defeat false thinking and false teaching. We've got to make sure that we watch our lives closely. We filter our lives through scripture. And so I want to close with this. As I said in the beginning, we are kept by God. And I thank God for that. I celebrate that. But the reality is that every single one of us, we're going to cross that finish line one way or another. And the question is, which way? I believe that we are a group of people who are going to finish strong. I believe we're a group of people who are going to finish well. But it doesn't happen by osmosis. And it doesn't happen through inaction. It happens through activity. It happens through obedience. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And I thank you for your people so much. So gracious, so godly, so eager to learn and to grow. And I pray that you will bless them on every single level in their endeavors. I pray that the spirit of the Lord would just become so powerful and real and revealing to every person that's here tonight. I want to pray that you will help us all to do what's necessary to finish strong. I pray that we will love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our minds and all of our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.